Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Uh, Nick here, and we've got some big news. This is being our first episode. Uh, we're happy to be on Apple iTunes finally. It's been a long journey, but you can now find us on three formats, whether that's YouTube, uh, the traditional way. Uh, on Apple iTunes, just search Holly History. Be sure to subscribe and review. You can also find us on SoundCloud by searching for Holly History as well. Um, be sure to follow us at History Holly on Twitter and email your questions to hollyhistory65 at gmail.com. We'd really like to get back to the original intent of the show instead of us just coming up with things to, to feed you guys. Um, and we want to get back to the question style. There are more shorts on the way, we promise. Uh, this school year has gotten a little crazy. I'm hoping over break to to get through growth in the West, industrialization, some of those other things. I know Mr. Chrisman is looking to get through, uh, or Mike, I should say. Let's use first names in this. It's much better that way. Is looking to get through some of the earlier stuff in American history as well. But we have a new co-host with us today. First of all, you've got me, Nick, as usual, my annoying voice. Um, you last heard me on the Reconstruction Short and the Genocide podcast. And I got Mike here, department head, Mike Chrisman. And we have a new host today, co-host. We hope to have a lot on the show, a new teacher in the district, Zach Ritz, who was my student teacher, was it two years ago now? Two years ago, yep. Two years ago now. Uh, I have Been a teaching a tree instead of a coaching tree now. <laughs> um, Zach comes to us from Brockport. Uh, yeah. was at uh, charter school last year, right? Yep, in the city. Urban yep. Choice Charter School in Rochester. For one year, for one year. And uh, it's, it's it's great to have him. He's, brings, he's a great teacher, brings a lot of Appreciate fun it. stuff. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, well, I'm also like patting myself. Yeah, yeah. Back, he kind of, I'm telling you everything you So we're really looking forward to having you here. Zach, you want to just tell us about some of your interests in history or what you're teaching and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, like you said, my name is Zach Ritz. Pretty much go by Ritz for the most part, I think. Um, that's what people end up calling me. Uh, I teach Global 9 and 10 here. Uh, love doing it. Love talking about world history. Uh, it's a good switch up because last year in the city I was doing American history, which... Uh, is interesting, but I definitely think I'm more of a world history guy, so I'm excited to be able to bring uh, a little bit of that to this podcast. Um, I also coach soccer here, looking to coach track, uh, and love getting kids active and that type of thing here. But it's been awesome. Great uh, great department. Oh, thank you. I feel like I got some good support here, so yeah, excited to join the team. Awesome, awesome. Well, today we've got uh, a couple things we're going to talk to with you about. Uh, the first one is a question that I think the three of us in the whole department grapples with all the time, and that is, and Zach's got the inside track here because he's actually writing a, a paper on this, so I'm going to start mm-hmm. with you okay. uh, for your master's course. Uh, what are we doing well in, in social studies education at the moment, like right now, and what are we not doing well, or what are we missing? So... Yeah, like you mentioned, I'm going to school right now, so this has kind of been, and I think I've seen it sort of develop since the beginning of my undergrad until now. 
Um, because when I first came in, I think there was still a lot of ideas about traditional uh, education with like desks in a row and that type of thing. And, and I still think there's a huge place for that in social studies, specifically with the amount of content we have. But I think slowly there's a shift almost away from not only like just feeding information, but also even the regents test. I feel like there's a shift getting away from that and more. I know we were talking about the other day, inquiry based stuff and um, project based learning and that type of thing. Um, And I'm personally excited that it's going that way. I think it should go that way. I think it allows us to get a deeper understanding of specific topics. but I think there's still a lot of work to be done in getting there and getting everyone on board doing yeah. that. So you think you think we're doing that well? I think we're, we're getting that. I way? think we're working towards it. Yeah, right. I don't know if we're doing it well yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think it's something we're working towards and improving upon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mike. So it, it's interesting because I mean I'm a little more seasoned than you you guys. What a great um, vocabulary! Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that nice? That code word for old. Um, what I what I see going on right now is our our students' ability to work with documents is is vastly superior to where it used to be. Um, I think back to the to the DBQ. I say old DBQ style. It's not really all that old, but I mean it was it was regurgitation. It was just spewing things back. Our our students' ability now to start tying things together. And, and making connections and thinking outside the box and going, you know, it's, it's not just limited to this one document. How does this fit in context with other things and what's going on and the questions that they ask about, well, why would this guy write this? Or, you know, what's the, what's the criticism of that? Um, I think is really good. The, the testing is what becomes tricky. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad to see there's been discussion um, amongst the regents folks about do we ditch the regents exam do we go with something more local right and i've always joked around with my students god forbid that they ever get rid of the regents exam because i'll make you think like i'll i i will have a test that really challenges your ability to do historical thinking not trying to tank anybody Mm -hmm. but you Challenge. Challenge, absolutely. I mean, let's be honest. The the old style exams, you could teach little tricks, right? Yep. Word association doesn't prove you mean you know anything uh, historically. It just means you're you're good mem- memorization, which yep. is the old style. Sit in a desk, stage on the stage. Um, which again, there there has to be a little bit. There has to be some. I think still direct instruction. That old school style. You still need to make sure they get the narrative right. But that that ability to be able to say there's more than one story here, I think, is right. is kind of I don't think kids twenty years ago would have been able to handle that well, at least not with the way things were being taught. Um, and, and our our segue into the the English claim evidence, I know I know our department, I give our English department, I give them a hard time because I say you know that claim evidence thing is what historians have done for centuries. So you you guys stole it from us. So don't think that you have anything new there, you know. Um, but I certainly think you know we're headed in a in a good trajectory. It's just how are we going to be able to assess that right. in the end? Right. right. We'll have deeper thinkers. I agree with you, Zaga. Deeper thinkers. Um, but yeah, how do you how do you assess that? That's 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 going to be an interesting question. There's not much meat on the bone left for me here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. Take it away for no, that's fine. Um, I think we are what we are doing well is we're getting to more of the depth in social studies. Um, and one thing our particular district does very well, I think, are the elective courses that we do allow us that depth, so things like that. It's not all that foreign, 
they've been prepared for it. Um, another thing I think that we're doing very, very well is, again, like you guys will talk, the shift to the documents has been excellent. I think that will help our students going forward be better citizens in the world. The things that I don't know if we're doing well, and Mike, you talked about the testing, is that the Regents test does not do a ton multiple choice wise, at least in the past, it didn't do a lot to actually get historical thinking in the right way. Right. To be honest, I don't know how, with Mike, you have your college history class. That prepares people if they're going into history in college and for college style classes in general. I don't know if in a survey like class of like Global 10 or Global 11, if that necessarily prepares a student to move into that. I don't even know if AP does that. Mm-hmm. You know, to be frankly honest, Getting into our college, I mean, we all went to take college courses. We're going to talk about that later. I took some lumps when I first started out. You know, we all did probably. Putting it mildly. You know what I mean? And, and so, you know, and, and, and the way that college professors teach is not the way that we know good, well, quote unquote, good instruction is, or at least what we're asked or expected to do. So I'm going to ask you both this question Do we do students a, dis, uh, a disservice when we have? Guide by the side lessons. We're not lecturing Sage in the stage. I'm not saying this is my opinion. I really enjoy the inquiry. I really enjoy forcing students to think, challenging them with projects. Do we do students a disservice when we don't lecture, when we don't Sage in the stage? Are we doing them a disservice when they get to college? I I personally don't think so. I don't mm-hmm. think we are. Um, and I'd agree. I definitely had professors that, you know, you come in, you sit down, and we got 120 minutes of, you know, this guy talking. And yeah. As someone who enjoys history, I found those classes to be interesting, and I liked them. But I think that those professors that I had that were like that were all of an age where they're that's going to change, just like teaching at the high school and middle school level is changing. Um, so I think that's on its way out, too. And I had younger professors um, in my graduate and undergraduate degree who, yes, they might lecture for a little bit, but we're doing a group project, and we're... Um, there's stuff that goes with it. Just like uh, you were saying earlier, Mike, like we should have, we should still have direct instruction, but supplement it with other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I don't think we're doing a disservice by encouraging that at all. I, I do agree with you too. I, I don't think so. And I would do wonder how much teaching at the college level will change mm-hmm. as different people go into the profession of different generations. I don't know. And I'm not saying lecture is bad. I, like you said, I, there was professors I had that I could sit and listen to all day. Right. I had no problem. I loved a good lecture and a, yeah. and a good per, narrative history in particular mm-hmm. when they could make things mm-hmm. seem like a narrative would yeah. just, I don't know, resonate with me. So we keep talking about getting kids college and career ready. And I still question some of what that means, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't always have things set and handed to you all the time. Uh, it would be interesting, I think, to, to talk with some professors. I mean, we have we have Brockport nearby. We have Roberts Wesley nearby. We have connections with Geneseo. Like, you know, uh, maybe that's a discussion we can have as a department at some point with some history professors. Like, what can we do, mm-hmm. right, to make our kids more ready for college? I don't think we can ever get them truly ready. I mean, that's just... You're dealing with a whole new schedule, a whole mm-hmm. new time frame. They're not locked in the building from 7.30 to 2.30, all that other stuff. Yeah. But, you know, and maybe that's a discussion to have down the road. And I'm curious, too, like how much do the college professors know about the new framework, right? Mm-hmm. The new framework that we're, that we're building we're building towards our, in our district I know we're using right now. And, and we're taking the framework exams. You know, do they even know what 
the new framework looks like, or have they only heard about it? I, I would I would hope that they've at least heard about it. Yeah. But you know, the, and the better ones knowing exactly what's going on. But I'd be curious to know if they even. Yeah, if, if I'm a professor who's close to retirement, I'll be honest, I'm probably not worrying about too much, right? Because you've, you've done what you've always done, and it is what it is. So is. I'm going to go on a limb here, and I think one of the things that they, college professors, at least from our time, we go to those seminars in Geneseo, um, that they're looking for is history taught in the correct way. You know, just getting away from, you know, things like the Civil War wasn't about. Slavery is about right. states' rights, you know. Right. Not, te- I don't know. I think one thing that they definitely want is our student is our critical thinkers. That, yeah, I, I honestly they want think that. that's what it comes down to. Yeah, right? to be able to take uh, information, synthesize it into an argument, and be able to right. back that up. No matter whether you whether the person feels you're right or wrong, right? right. I mean, that that's higher level thinking. I think they want a foundation of, of solid, probably solid, not facts but concepts. Yeah, if that makes any sense, or even like skills and kind of going back to what we were talking about like what we're doing well I think the shift in social studies being less about facts and more about skills and critical thinking is what you were saying earlier goes into creating kids who are going to be able to go out into the world and Mm -hmm. be open-minded and not be you know I was told this by my mom and dad and this is what I think and I'm not going to deviate from that um encourage them to challenge ideas and um, I think that should be the goal of social studies, especially with global, where we're looking at a bunch of different diverse groups of people. Um, you know, it kind of helps expand people's minds a little bit and um, challenge previous ideas that they might have. Yeah, the idea that we might not have a regents exam one day is thrilling. Yeah, but I, I will say too, even though I'm kind of hating on the regents, I think it is going in the Absolutely. right direction with like the Absolutely. stimulus-based right. questions and yep. whatnot. Um, but agreed, I think it could be. Oh my gosh, I, I wish you could take students and say, okay, let's dive into one topic from this year, 100%. prove a point, yeah. something just really, really may challenge them. I think the idea of the regents in the beginning was the right idea, which is the regents should be the, the minimum. Yes, I agree. But the regents turned into the maximum because mm-hmm. of numerous issues, but that includes things right. like the state report card and, and how, are, you know, how do schools look. And then it becomes the maximum because... Yes, within the framework of, of the exam, you were teaching social studies, but you were worried about what are those scores going to look like. And I think there's a place for ballpark history. Mm-hmm. I really do. The, the, this idea in ballpark history is this idea that you have a general concept of what happened when. You don't need to know the date or the people exactly, but you got to know the general sequencing of things and almost, I, I don't want to say at a citizenship level, perhaps a little bit above that, but perhaps we could see a day where you know, you do have the 50 multiple choice question, and then you have to supplement the second part of the exam with a personal thesis paper, argument, narrative, I don't know. So you need that, that has to be submitted to the state who then evaluates that if it's acceptable right. and grades it. I, I, that would be phenomenal, and I think it would prepare students a lot better for the next level. Mm-hmm. And also, we're always told in education that when students are allowed to choose or can explore their own interests, they're going to work much harder. And I agree with that. And what does the regents exam do? Tell you exactly what What's you have to do. to do. Yes, yes. So anything else anyone wants to add to that before we move on? Um, no. I'm okay. good. All right. All right, Zach, you're going to start this one too. So this question is, you know, we like to come up with, you know, kind of, I don't want to call them lame, but they're they're funny. Uh, you're, we're going to go through each of us. Your favorite American historical figure that nobody knows about. Okay. Somebody that's rare. So, Zach, you're going to kick us off. Take it away. All right. So, I did a little digging to try and find someone a little more obscure. 
Um, I ended up with Robert Perry. Um, the reason I went with him is because I have a thing for kind of hiking around and exploring and traveling and whatnot. Uh, so Robert Perry, born in 1856 in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. he's the first gentleman to set foot in the North Pole. Um, he ends up going on a bunch of dog sled voyages. Some fail, uh, has to go back and forth. He has to kind of study the native populations and figure out how to build igloos uh, so he can survive you know, snowstorms and blizzards and that type of thing. Um, has to figure out how to hunt and dress himself appropriately so he can survive. Um, goes in the Navy, ends up getting all kinds of awards. Uh, there is some dispute on if he actually made it to the true North Pole. Um, it's about 50-50 split. Some say he made it. Some say he got close enough that you can call it the North Pole. Um, but, yeah, that's my guy. Good choice. Good choice. Yeah. I, I'm not going to lie. I had no idea. When you said him when he came in the studio today, I was like, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and I like to think I'm pretty good, but that that's definitely one. And these are people you guys should, if anyone listening, go go explore more about them. Cool guy for sure. Yeah. All right, Mike. So I went with a, a guy that um, folks probably know the event that he's that he's a, an integral figure in. Uh, the event is the Alamo, and that the the person is William Barrett Travis. Um, he's kind of he's a I, I didn't do as much digging as Zach did, but he's, William Barrett Travis is a guy uh, that I know about because I, I my wife lived in lived in Texas for a while. We went up to San Antonio. I was intrigued by the whole Alamo story. Always have been, even since as a kid. Um, it, it, Travis is an interesting guy because um, he's not exactly a squeaky clean character. You know, he leaves his wife. He abandons. I mean, best best way to put it, he abandons his wife and kids in Alabama. Heads to Texas, as many folks did, to uh, start a new life. Uh, gets caught up in the Texas Revolution, is the commander of the uh, Texan forces at the Alamo. Uh, he issues the, the famous victory or death letter. Uh, basically, he's writing to Sam Houston saying, I need reinforcements. I'm, I'm surrounded. I'm cut off. I'm going to fight to the last man, uh, and I will die in the service to Texas. Um, I, and I find those moments in, very interesting. Um, yeah, according to legend, he's the one who drew, who drew the line in the sand, right, and told people, you know, if, if you're if you intend to stay, step across the line. Which Texan. according a true Texan, right? Of course, that one's just for you, Sheena. Um, <laughs> you know, and of course they all step across the line. Um, again, legend, you know. But um, what drives a person to? do that like obviously he made a conscious decision like you know i'm i'm fighting this out to the end and i'd I'd like to think that i have that kind of resolve in me um when it comes to important things but i'm not a hundred percent sure i do you know and what makes a guy like that tick um and there was it was interesting because they actually i just saw the alamo was in the news Mm -hmm. uh just the other day they found three remains uh, they were doing some archaeological. They, actually, they were uh, they wanted to install something, so they had to do an archaeological uh, excavation just to make sure there was nothing there. And lo and behold, they came across three remains in inside the actual Alamo itself that they didn't know were there before. So, yeah, kind of kind of an interesting uh, story, you know. And people know the ending, of course. You know, he dies there, but uh, that that whole idea of be willing to die for a cause. I, I don't know. It's, it's I find that stuff intriguing. Yeah, and I think that with, with, like you said, the myths of history and all that, we, we look for stories and people that we want to see the best of us in, maybe. And you know, that idea that you would continue to fight on no matter what. Um, and the, oh gosh, the Alamo is just so American. 
Well, and it's what's interesting is if you go down there, I mean, it's 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 Texan. Oh yeah, right. But it's it, not but, American. Yeah, but it is. But it is American because they're they're Americanos who are coming across the border and they're there with the Teanos, and and the Teanos and the Americans are fighting the the Mexicans, and once that's done, then there's a split between the Americans and the Teanos, and the some of the political intrigue and all that, and, and the way that the history is remembered. Right. The Teanos are key to winning the Texas Revolution, but they're not given a whole lot of credit, at least more until recently. Um, it's it's always been, you know, Bowie, Crockett, and Travis are the you know, the three heroes of the mm-hmm. yeah, the three heroes of the Alamo. And you don't hear a whole lot about the Teanos who are supplying information and getting our runners in and out of the fort and, and things like that. Well, that's a good segue to, to my choices. Um, Sir William Johnson, who is Superintendent of Native American Affairs. Don't laugh at me because it's French and English I knew, stuff. No, I knew it was coming. That's yeah. all. <laughs> um, Sir William Johnson was Superintendent of Native American Affairs for the British in North America for much of the Seven Years' War, the French and New War, as we call it. And he's a guy that is in some pretty big moments leading up to the American Revolution. Uh, he'll die before his time there. He is seen as kind of an adopted member of the Mohawk, which is one of the Six Nations in New York. His wife was Mohawk. Yeah, yes, yeah. Molly, yeah, Molly Brandt. Um, his wife was Mohawk. So he's fascinating to me because he has a foot in both worlds. And I think Americans are fascinated. I think people in general mm-hmm. are fascinated by that, that people have yeah. um, have a foot in more than one world. And, and it's up for debate the amount of – basically, supposedly Johnson is part of the, the cohort of people in the French New War that convinced the Iroquois to come over to their side. And that turn, kind of turns the tide in New York State, allows them to take Fort Niagara. Um, but in reality, it, it, that's really overstated. It really was the Six Nations cho- <clears throat> excuse me, choice. And Johnson probably didn't have much to do with that, nor did the French. The Iroquois basically looked at their, their situation, the Haudenosaunee, and they said, well, we're in a lot better position if the British win this war than the French, so we're going to throw away behind them, and that's the way it's going to be. And it probably had very little to do with Johnson. It doesn't mean that I don't find him fascinating. I still do. Uh, here's a guy with very little f- military experience on a grand scale, and he conducts a brilliant siege at Fort Niagara, uh, where I'm formerly employed at, and manages to hold it together somehow. Uh, the the commander, John Prudhoe, <laughs> walks by. Yeah, a mor- was that the one in front of the mortar? Yeah, he walks <laughs> in front of the mortar and, and quite, quite literally loses his head. Yes. And, yeah, somebody got the Irresponsible <laughs> Soldier of the Week award there. Uh, is walking. Oh, can you imagine being the guy on the mortar team? Oops. <laughs> Wait, was that the general? Yeah, I think it was. And he's in two pieces. Well, I got to tell you, I think you're on solid ground because I was at a conference a number of years ago where uh, Fred Anderson yeah. uh, was uh, one of the key speakers. He wrote uh, Crucible of War uh, about the French and Indian War. Probably one of the best colonial historians in America. And, and he said that he felt Sir William Johnson was was one of the most important uh, colon, colonial uh, figures when it yes. came to Native American relation, mm-hmm. relations. Because um, yeah, without the Iroquois help during the French and Indian War, I mean, yeah. that war is a different outcome. Yeah. yeah, they're a whole different agent in that war. We usually see Native Americans as sort of a... The side shower or the side people, and in that war, that's a great disservice to them. The Iroquois are intel, mostly intel. I mean, you cannot move through the interior of New York. The interior of New York was totally frontier. Mm-hmm. You can't move, make a sound, or anything, or fearful of attack. Yep. Um, the Iroquois are the eyes and ears of everything, and they had no problem, um, you know, 
making sure that they were doing right by their own people in that war and they had their own agency and it was very impressive what they could do. I kind of had a 1A sitting here to think it up. We all kind of picked oh three three dudes, so I wanted to choose one and I'm going to put Mike on the spot because he can talk about this better than me. I think Alice Paul is one as an American that nobody nobody knows a lot about, gives credit to. Um, she's an incredible woman. Mike, you want to kind of speak yeah, to her? Yeah, I mean, I, that's, a, that's a great point. I, Alice Paul was somebody I didn't hadn't learned about until maybe yeah. ten years ago, and um, we have a book here in our library. Um, There's a biography about Alice Paul. I read read about her. just such an interesting figure. And we were talking about this in our World Wars class about how we talk about women fighting for their rights. And the pictures are always there of women standing outside the White House with you know banners and whatnot. But when you did really did some reading and you realized what happened to these women when they were arrested. Um, they make a clear decision not to pay the fine because paying the fine admits guilt. And then they're sentenced to hard labor. While they're doing hard labor, they're going to hunger strike. They're force-fed. Um, we use a, a clip from Iron Jaw to Angels from HBO that shows vividly um, force-feeding. You know, And it's one thing to describe it to students. It's something else to, to have them watch it. I mean, I've seen kids actually like almost gag i've seen other kids like look away as they're shoving this tube down her throat but it also reveals the complexity of the women's um suffrage movement right the the arguments between carrie chapman cat and uh alice paul this whole idea of do we make the argument for suffrage state by state or do we make this a national argument and be done with it um and just alice paul she's just she's one of those folks in history that Again, not a lot of folks have heard about. We've all heard about Susan B. Anthony. Most folks have heard of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, mm-hmm. Lucretia Mott. But Alice Paul is just one of those folks who just goes out there and you know gets the job done. Um, and doesn't seem like she's all that worried about the credit. Like, just let's get this accomplished. Puts her life in line. Yeah. Her body, you know. Quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is... And again, that's, that goes back to William Barrett Travis, yeah. right? You're willing to, to suffer for your cause, right? You can talk about it, but being about it's a different thing. All right, our next question. I just thought of a great idea for another podcast. Most overrated presidents, but that's... <laughs> we could be here a while. Yeah. That'll be for another time. I don't know. I don't know. These things just pop into my head. I have to write them down or say them to get them on record. Um, <laughs> most influential teacher or professor you ever had and why? So I don't mind if you use more than one or two, but okay. yeah, you can go ahead, Zach. Take us away. Um, all right, I think I'm going to go with two. And just kind of going back to what we were talking about, about how um, social studies is going in the direction of looking for depth. I had, and maybe it's a result of the class, but as a history major, you have to take a research class. So I took mm-hmm. History 390 at Brockport with um, a professor, Angela Thompson, I believe her name was. Tom mm-hmm. Sell, maybe. Um, sorry. Uh, and she... It was a year-long research project about just the Congo and just the Belgians being in the Congo. And it was an event I had never learned about. And just through that research, though, I felt like we hit enough themes that I could have just done that research with my global class this year. And we would have talked about imperialism and industrialization and some of these big, huge topics you want to hit in social studies. And we would have worked on all of these skills and research and point of view and perspective and why are the political cartoons have the Congolese people look like this and you know um, why is civilization portrayed as a Roman woman in all of these cartoons? So I think that um, she was influential in showing me that 
if you really dive deep into one topic, one, I got so much more out of it than my basic history 200 level classes. And also, um, it's something that has stuck with me, meaning I really truly know it. Whereas, you know, I got to look stuff up for other things mm-hmm. when I'm talking about, you know, basic history facts. I got to look mm-hmm. stuff up. But the, that one event, I know really well. Um, so she was she was big for me in terms of like teaching me how I should or how I should strive to teach my kids. Um, and the other person I just want to mention is uh, Danny Deem. And she was uh, principal at Victor Schools. Uh, and she was my mentor actually last year. She was brought in to help the first year teachers. And she was tremendous as far as teaching me how to um, cultivate relationships and how to manage my classroom, um, especially in a classroom environment where I was that was uh, difficult. And their kids were coming with a lot of baggage. Um, and she was just awesome and teaching me how to deal with it and cope with it and work with those kids. And, and those both sound, I think we're going to have a lot of similar themes mm-hmm. with the teachers here. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. So, Mike? So, I'm going to start off with my seventh grade social studies teacher. Okay. Which was a few years ago. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, only a few. Uh, Mary Jo Click. Uh, and she's uh, she worked at Webster uh, Central School District. She retired. She's retired since. Um, my mom is we used to be a lunch aide there. She ran into Mrs. Click all the time. Mrs. Click was the the perfect social studies storyteller, mm-hmm. and that's I, yeah. I've always said a good good social studies teacher is a good storyteller. Like if, if you tell if you teach history well, it's a great story that keeps people hooked. And I remember her one lesson, and I'll, it just it resonated and shocked me at the same time. We were talking about the Boston Massacre. And she laid it out, you know, so she laid out all the facts. And, and back then, we didn't really do a whole lot of documents. It was just, you know, teacher talking and whatnot. I remember vividly her talking about, you know, these British soldiers, you know, they're they're firing on a crowd, relatively unprovoked, right? I mean, you know, the, the crowd does do some things. And then she, she paused and she said, would American troops ever do that? And I was so adamant about absolutely not, never, it would never happen. And then she proceeded to turn around and talk about Kent State. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like wow. for me, that, you know, as a seventh grader, I'd never heard of Kent State before. Um, and that was like, that was, a, that was one of those moments where you're like, wow, I don't know as much about the world as I really thought I did, right? But it, it really was an eye opener and, and got me to think. And, and, and she, the way that she did it was so, it was, it was perfect for a teacher because it wasn't you're wrong. Right, mm-hmm. it was just well. Let me tell you a different story, right? And it was like, oh, just eye-opening moment. Um, and and one of my favorite things we did when I was student teaching was we had to write a letter to the teacher that inspired us. Oh, and cool. um, yeah, it was a neat that was a neat uh, exercise. And I wrote her a letter and I typed it out because my handwriting is atrocious. <laughs> my students who have seen my handwriting know that. Um, and and it was funny because she sent a letter back and she said, I got to be honest, I didn't remember who you were until I saw your signature <laughs> at the bottom of the page. Interesting fact, I found out later on, and I don't know her maiden name, she is she was a graduate of Holly High School. Really? So oh my she gosh. was tickled pink when she found out I got a job here teaching the same grade she did uh, when I had her in class. So um, Mrs. Click, I, I truly can't ever say thank you enough. Um, the other person I'll, I'll, I'll talk really quick about uh, in college was um, still over at Brockport College right now, Dr. Wanda Wakefield. 
Uh, she does a lot of um, sports history. She worked on a project I know on the history of NASCAR. Um, she's a luge official for the Olympics. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, she is just she's just a, a really cool individual. She she's able to take history and make it meaningful. Even those things you go, you know, I'm not sure I can tie basketball into being historically significant. And I remember we went over to uh, the AP US History Conference at the Strong, and she started talking about how. Um, you know, basketball in the early days was seen as a Jewish sport. Mm. And, and, she, and she went into this whole long thing with the kids, and the kids were like, what? <laughs> and it was just, it was really cool for the kids to see that other things besides political, social, military, or economics, there's way more to history right. than just those four things, which yeah. we tend to focus on. The Regents exam right. focuses yeah. on. And I know, I know there's been some discussion here about maybe trying to do a pathway to graduation with sports. Through like sports management, mm-hmm. sports medicine, wouldn't it be kind of cool to do a sports history? That'd be right. Awesome. The only trick is, is is to make sure that the students understand like this is serious stuff. Like you know this right. this is not just right. you know who gained so many yards you know in the NFL right. a certain year. This is really taking a look at social socially like how important is sport and play to mm-hmm. the human experience. You could tie in like. You can tie in like gladiators and like oh, the Mayan ball game and all that stuff. Right? You yeah. can do a lot with that. Yeah. So idea. and and what does what do our modern uh, sports cultures say about us? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've heard modern sports cultures being described as you know people. You know, Nick, you have your your Bills jersey on today. Yeah, a big win. Go Bills! Right? But it, it's almost like people wearing gang colors. Right, you have your tribe. Oh gosh, right? yes. and and people, you know, they have their own language, language and lingo, and mm-hmm. just you know that kind of stuff. So yeah. it was it was kind of cool watching her teach these things to high school students because she could turn off the professor speak a little bit and just talk, right. and it, that was mm-hmm. fun to, to see. So I appreciate Wanda for that. Wanda was also on my uh, my review board for my uh, re- or for my uh, master's. Uh, oh, there you go. Uh, you know, final paper, and, and she has some. Some really tough questions. So I have a lot of respect for her. So Wanda Wakefield, thank you. Yeah, and you go back to the thing about sports and jerseys and tribes and stuff like that. Humans, I mean, in general, have they drifted? We talked about the genocide podcast of the, the retribalization of the world among ideology and different things. And, you know, there's a lot of studies done about, like, is fandom healthy? Do you know, like this idea of like you are identifying with something and stressing about something and I'm victim number one here. Uh, You have no control over and then you will get so upset. And after the fact, you can recognize, wow, I got that upset. Well, Michigan hasn't beaten Ohio State in seven or eight years. You can see why. But anyways, I had I had a beer. Sorry to jump in. I had a beer poured on me as a like a 10 or 11 year old at a Bills game. Really? For wearing my LaDainian Tomlinson jersey. So uh, bolt up. And you well, and you still, and to be fair to you, you still you know have, you've been very like cordial about Bills fans and stuff since. That speaks to you a yeah, little bit there. Yeah. Um, for for my most influential teachers and professors, I mean the whole Lewis and Porter social studies department was fantastic when I was there. Um, I'll just shout out to the whole department. I really enjoyed my classes there. Had some wonderful experiences. Was well pre- prepared for all my AP exams and my regents, obviously, but. Beyond that, just had some great discussions in those classes. I'm going to go with two professors I had in college. Um, the first is an adjunct professor I had. His name is 
is is not was. And <laughs> change his name and he's still alive. Tom Tom Barden. Um Tom is still a Facebook friend of mine and I'll make sure I tag him when I do the uh, when I put this on my on my Facebook page and post it. Tom Barden was an adjunct teacher. I had him for INTD like 104, 105. It was a writing course. But he was a high school social studies teacher who was an adjunct through history who taught the INTD classes for writing. And I had his class and he's teaching high school during the day. And which also made him a great professor because he could, he probably understood freshmen really well. Yeah. He's teaching seniors. He taught he teaches pig, um, and he would bring so much of his own flair to the classroom of his interests and stuff, and yet curtail it in a way that allowed you to explore your own interests. He was the perfect guy to have for a class um, in in the beginning of my college experience. For that reason, he really prepared me well and got me off to a good start. Then took him for humanities too. Which was awesome too. He is actually a published author. He wrote this great book. I have a copy at home. Tom, I still got to get it signed by you. Um, Napoleon's Purgatory, and it, it was a lifelong fascination of his of, about Napoleon's final years. He actually has the license plate Napoleon in New York. <laughs> he's got it. He, he's got it. And 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 I have my figures like that. Whether it's Theodore Roosevelt or Benedict Arnold that I enjoy so much, and it was. It was cool to see that somebody else had that kind of passion for someone. Um, you know, he always jokes, a little Italian guy took over the world with French troops. <laughs> and in anyways, so he his book is out there now. You can buy it on Amazon. It's called Napoleon's Purgatory. It's a great book. And his the way he looks in Napoleon's final years on um, is it Saint Saint Helena? It's not Elba. Elba's the first island. Yeah, I don't remember. I I'm pretty sure. Helena. I think it's Helena, Saint Helena, something like that. And it escapes me at the moment, but. Just like he, he gives this human perspective on this monument guy of history, but gives this human side of him and almost mm-hmm. compares him to like an, an Italian grandpa who, who, who misses his wife and his, his kids and, um, you know, buys ponies for kids in the island. You know, just that, remember that being one of the stories he told. Uh, Tom also worked on political campaigns. Uh, he worked for Rick Lazio. Uh, he had pictures, and he would always joke about how he had more hair in those pictures. Um, so Tom Barden, was, and I got to student teach with him, actually, at Marcus Whitman. He was my first placement, and so I got to student teach with him, which was an awesome experience. A lot of the things I still do are geared to the way that uh, he taught me. And then the other professor that i got to obviously talk about is uh, Dr. Michael Oberg at Geneseo. Uh, first of all, Dr. Oberg is one of my favorite professors because of the topic he teaches. He's early American history and Native American history, too. Check, check. Two of my favorite things to talk about. So they already had me right there. I only got to take one course with them on uh, kind of colonial America, British Atlantic world. So that was kind of sad. But, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I got to write my my thesis with him, my senior thesis. And he was always so helpful about that. Um, some of the things I liked about him in the classroom is he, he even though he had been a professor for a while, he I always remember him saying this, that uh, there's always something wrong with the kids. But I, I get you guys. You know, he always joke about, like, there's always something wrong with the kids in history. And I still use that in my classes today. But he held people accountable, too. I loved that in class. If you didn't read, he knew, mm-hmm. and he let you know. But it, it wasn't in a demeaning way or anything like that. And, he, you know, he, he was fair. Right. Um, and I always remember how he teached the American Revolution. You know, he would talk about, uh, you guys are, act, you know, passionate about political issues. How many of you are willing to go grab a gun? stand 50 yards away from somebody and defend those political issues and beliefs. And he has this perspective on the American Revolution and really all of his history that he teaches. Uh, he's written like the essential textbook on Native American history that's used across the country. 
he's just a brilliant guy, but he always talked about, you know, different things in different ways and, and explaining in a way that you could grab it. He could be funny at times. Um, he had everything that a good a good teacher has, so I'm very, very, very thankful uh, for that. So, all right. Well, I think that's good for one episode, the first episode of the yeah. year. Hopefully we get back in soon. I really want to talk about the most overrated presidents. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm thinking we have to of. Set aside some time for that one. I'm thinking of one right now that I. I we've just been talking about World Wars, Mike. That <laughs> oh, I know you're. Is, going with that. Yeah, you know exactly where I'm going with that, and probably lets the cat out of the bag. Remember us. Follow us at uh, History Holly on Twitter, and email questions to hollyhistory65 at gmail dot com. Um, there's more shorts on the way. We're, we're very sorry those have been delayed and then coming out. And uh, we just want to thank you for listening. Check us out on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube, whatever you prefer. We're at all three medias. Uh, Thank you for joining us. This is Holly History signing off from the library.